You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McCray. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. This is Mark McRae and... Dan Klink. Today, we're going to talk about Ken Spears, who was one of the co-creators of Scooby-Doo. He passed away a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I have a a very personal connection with Ken Spears. Uh, Back in 2005, in my official capacity as a Cartoon Network programmer, I had to email Ken Spears about uh, some information regarding Scooby-Doo and how many times the series was pitched to the network and that one question was resulted in Ken Spears and I going back and forth uh it opened the door for me to be able to ask other behind the scenes questions and and Ken Spears was like a real stand up guy and a wonderful person and a, a a great creator and so we're going to talk about uh the Ruby Spears Ken Spears uh legacy for Saturday morning and beyond yeah, it's really hard to overstate the shadow that uh, Ken Spears, along with Joe Ruby, cast over the Saturday morning. And, and you know, uh, I, I would say American televised animation uh, as a whole, their their influence, their contribution go back to uh, even before they formed Ruby Spears. We're uh, we're we're going to pay tribute and, and dive into to a bit of history. On these two yes. uh, legends, uh, and uh, certainly pay our tributes to 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 Ken Spears. Yes, and so we did uh, a quick episode regarding Ken Spears' writing and producing partner uh, Joe Ruby, who died uh, back on August twenty sixth. And uh, you know, I was sad to hear the news about Ken Spears passing as well. Uh, these guys, everything that they touched turned to ratings gold. They were very, very talented writers, producers. They knew what the public wanted. Uh, they were able to forecast what the public wanted. And a lot of animation companies didn't have that <laughs> type of uh, forecasting power. They were one of the few people in the industry during the 70s and 80s that could sort of predict what kids wanted to see on television. Yeah, these guys were like free money. Uh, I would love to have taken them to Vegas or, or have them buy my lottery <laughs> ticket for me. Absolutely. Total, right, f- right. Yeah, it's like they were from the future. Oh, for sure, for sure. And so they started their careers at Hanna-Barbera and eventually started getting writing assignments. They were writers for the Herculoids uh, mm-hmm. back in 1967, which is a very high watermark for Hanna-Barbera. Uh, oh my gosh yeah sword and sorcery in general right right exactly the series is action-packed and has great storylines it's one of the few shows that is mentioned in joe barbera's book that he talks about generating huge huge ratings on saturday morning television right and i i would have to say that at least the first eight episodes of the herculoids are really animated with an extra budget it seems it's like i 
I, I felt like Hanna-Barbera was trying to make the Herculoids sort of like their next Johnny Quest. Right. Which, of exactly. course, was the studio's other high watermark uh, series. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know mm-hmm. that until the, you uh, put those in the notes here. These beautiful, exhaustive notes. It's, uh, <laughs> I, grew, I mean, I grew up watching. Uh, I grew up on, on Ruby Spears. But then, um, let's see, in 1969, they were uh, they became story editors for a new series called Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Yeah. yeah and that, uh, that, that little show, that, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that little you know, side project, if any of our listeners have heard of uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo. So I feel like uh, Scooby-Doo, again, this show went through an exhaustive, creative and shopping around right the series was pitched twice to the network the first pitch was rejected because uh fred silverman and the powers that be at cbs thought it was too scary and so they went back and you know joe ruby ken spears they reworked the pitch and came up with a a softer not as scary pitch for the series right but there were different character designs and different names for characters. And the series was supposed to be a musical group because, you know, the Archies, which uh, was produced by Filmation and was Hanna-Barbera's chief rival, had the number one series from the following season. And, you know, Lou Shimo always loves telling that story about how his representatives were down at CBS at the same time that Hanna-Barbera's agent, Cy Rosen, was down there and they overheard... Uh, Fred Silverman, who was running CBS this Saturday morning, tell Cy Rosen to go put Archie in a haunted house. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. So that was the beginnings of Scooby. And of course, they decided not to make Scooby and his friends a musical band like the Archies. And I really think that was probably the best decision. And this way, the characters could focus on solving mysteries. And right running around and and not necessarily being a knockoff of another successful teenage show. And you know what? The the opening theme to Scooby-Doo is banging. I mean... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the uh, the Archies certainly had some hits, got up on the charts. Mm-hmm. I would argue that the Scooby-Doo theme song <laughs> is right up there next to all of the Archies' hits, and it's certainly oh. in, in, in rememberability. Yes, yes. So one of the advantages that I think Filmation had over Hanna-Barbera in terms of music was that Norm Prescott worked in radio for a long time, and he had a lot of connections to the music industry. He had connections to Don Kirshner, who was one of the biggest music producers of the day. And they got the Archies on the air after a lot of DJs refused to play it because it was a cartoon band. And unfortunately for... A lot of the other animation companies like Hanna-Barbera, a theme like Scooby-Doo should have definitely been played on the radio. And if it had had been played on the radio, it would have been a pretty big hit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good music that ran on Saturday morning that was created by a lot of talented musicians that unfortunately, (laughs) because those connections were not there to radio, the music didn't get played. There is really only... Three, I think Sugar Sugar, some of the Archie stuff definitely got played. Sure. There's a Groovy Ghoulie song called Chicka Boom right. that got played on the radio. And our producer, one of another person we're a fan of musically, um, that we talked about, 
my curb. Oh, dude, and his congregation. Yes, absolutely. Right. My curb and his congregation. Uh, I believe that they also had a song played on the radio. I think it was from the Hot Wheels soundtrack. Right, right. Those three songs were the only ones that actually charted on Saturday morning. Scooby-Doo didn't mess with that. Right, yeah, Scooby-Doo didn't mess with that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, in 1970 came the show that really changed my life. And and Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, because they created this huge hit, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which did great in the ratings, they were assigned to... The show that it will always be mentioned in every single episode of Best <laughs> of Our Lives podcast. <laughs> Josie and the Pussycats. That's right. <laughs> and I cannot say enough about this show. I believe that it is the greatest Hanna-Barbera show from the 1970s, bar none. Uh, there's just so many creative elements that went into this series. And this show also went through a pretty stringent pitch process. One of the actual pitch photos showed up on Facebook not too long ago. And there was a lot of characters that were supposed to be in the first iteration of this series. And by the time Joe Ruby and Ken Spears got through, they cut the uh, character count down to six, which I think was a great decision. And through this series was my first introduction to animation. But it was really smart. Instead of like trying to duplicate what was going on in Josie's comic book world, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears wisely chose to bring Josie and the Pussycats into the Hanna-Barbera world right. of intrigue, danger, and adventure, and comedy. So it was like the perfect mashup of teenage comic book characters that are in the world of Hanna-Barbera, and I believe that's why the series works. Right. And then when you start talking about the diverse female characters on this show, uh, Valerie Smith, who is also known as Valerie Brown now, uh, she, you know, becomes the first African-American female to be on Saturday morning. And then there's Alexandra Cabot, who's the mean girl, and Melody, who's sort of the ditzy character. And I could relate to all three of those female characters because I knew girls at school exactly like them. So they were writing to your experience. Really? Right, they exactly. Were, they were uh, writing to you uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a pretty personal, specific level. That's that's right. what, that's kind of cal caliber we got uh, with this this duo. They rounded out their first stint at Hanna Barbera with the Harlem Globetrotters and Pebbles and Bam Bam. Go check out some mm -hmm. of our earlier episodes where we we explore both of those shows pretty thoroughly. Right. Uh, then they bounce over to a uh, to Patty Freeling. Right, and so. Joe Ruby and, and Ken Spears, they develop a reputation for creating hits right. for CBS and for Hanna-Barbera. So they go over to the Patty Freeling, who's actually having the opposite problem. They're not creating any hit shows, and NBC is in last place. Oh, so much like uh, if a basketball team has a weak power forward, then they, uh, well, you go into the free market. You go pick up some, uh, some fresh blood. Right, right. And I think it was a, a smart move for the Patty Feeling to want these guys to come over because they needed the help. Right. They develop uh, the Hound Cats, a series called the Hound Cats, right. as, as for the Patty Feeling, as well as the Barclays, right. which is a animated version of like All in the Family. All in the Family, yeah. And it's interesting that they're able to take a, a the, Nor the Norman Lear mature primetime subject concepts and port them if you will over to saturday morning 
I mean, these guys are like Swiss Army knives of the writing world, the animated writing world. Right, right. And I mean, don't get me wrong. All in the Family was a huge shift in television primetime programming and content. It sort of signaled the end of the traditional sitcom as people knew it back in the 70s. It was it was a new day in how a what they would call a situation comedy post rural purge. And these guys mm-hmm. adapted and uh, hit their hit second and third gear. Mm hmm. Bailey's Comets, like wacky races on roller skates. Right, exactly. Uh, and so Bailey's Comets is also has an interesting story. One of the things that Ken Spears told me during our email exchange was that Fred Silverman was not a fan of the Patty Freeling because he felt that since they were not having success with any hit shows over at NBC, he basically was like, well, you guys can't even come and pitch anything over here because I don't think it'll be great. But Joe Ruby and Ken Spears developed Bailey's Comets. And of course, the character design was very similar to the Archie House style. And it also duplicated. It was Wacky Races again, but on roller skates. And these guys uh, bounce over to NBC, uh, to Patty Freeling. Uh, right, right. They're writing Planet of the Apes. I mean, these guys are like... Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, I mean, now I'm starting yeah. to think of their career and being like, man, the nerve of these dudes. What, what, <laughs> what, uh, what weren't they allowed to get their hands into? Um, and then, and then, and right. then, and then Jabberjaw. Uh, by the time Jabberjaw was developed, uh, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears had moved with uh, Fred Silverman from CBS over to ABC to create content uh, for ABC as well as pitch content to the other studios. And uh, one of the stories he shared with me was that Captain Caveman was supposed to be produced by Filmation and that they pitched the idea to Filmation. Filmation made so many changes that it wasn't Captain Caveman anymore. And so the original concept ended up going to Hanna-Barbera. And that was that. But still, you know, Jabba Jaw is a favorite. Captain Caveman is a favorite. I mean, we talked about <laughs> extensively about how a character has weaved himself into all of the Flintstones' different continuity Dude, stories. Yeah, no, we, we even we even dissected it and reconstructed it back up to a time travel father-son mm-hmm. bonding slash like kind of potential dark tragedy. Right. <laughs> yeah. During the Flintstones continuity episodes, we, we examine Captain Caveman. A lot. So if you haven't listened to any of those episodes, you know, take a listen to those. Uh, it's, it's really good. And I don't want to go down that dark hole right yeah. now, but, uh, we need to, we, we need to move on. Just like, uh, uh, Ruby Spears, Ken Ruby and Joe Spears moved on to, uh, working with Sid Marty Croft now within the, the Croft, uh, right. super show in 1976. Oh my gosh. So again, there wouldn't have been a relationship with Sid and Marty Croft if they didn't have a Sterling reputation for working at Hanna-Barbera and working at the Patty Freeling. So, of course, Sid and Marty Croft was like, yeah, you guys are great. Yeah, let's work together. And they developed the Croft Super Show, which is a 90-minute live action series that features many elements. And this is where the industry was going. Like, all of a sudden, Saturday morning was at this place in the mid-70s where you know, an hour show just wasn't going to do it anymore. It was all about, let's see if we can capture kids' attention by creating this 90-minute uh, bonanza of 
of excitement with different elements and different characters. And hopefully the kids will stay for the entire 90 minutes. And that's the tricky part because, you know, if some of the kids like some of the characters, they'll stick around. But if there's one or two characters they don't like, Oh, they're they gone. Might, yeah. They might have, they, right. They might have changed the channel. It bounced. Yeah, exactly. One of the big marquee shows from the Croft Super Show was Electro Woman and Dinah Girl. Right. Which the shocker about that series is that following on the heels of uh, The Secrets of Isis, which was produced by Filmation, Isis was the first live action female superhero to be on Saturday morning. And uh, she actually showed up, I believe, before Wonder Woman showed up over on ABC in prime time. Right. Electra Woman and Dinah Girl did really great ratings as well. And I was surprised that there wasn't a second season ordered for the series. Um, maybe it was a very expensive series. Uh, Deidre Hall, who played Electra Woman, was also on a soap opera you know, full time at the time. And maybe she had other commitments. I have no idea, but I just feel like that's another show that should have at least gotten a second season or half a second season. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, they were never canceled, if you will. They always had work waiting for them. I'm starting to see a pattern here where it's like they're, they're like tag team Samurais with no masters, Ronin, if you will. Uh, <laughs> yes, just, yes. just, just, you know, uh, walking the streets of Hollywood, getting the hard work done every time, and just, uh, you know, taking the open shot and nailing it. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. So I just wanted to mention some of the other segments on the Croft Super Show was Captain Cool and the Kongs. Captain Cool and the Kongs. No, totally, totally. Right. They they were put together like the monkeys were put together, you know, as a as a group, you know, right. for television. There was also Doctor Shrinker, you know, who was an evil scientist with a lab on an uncharted island, and the wrong kids at the wrong time that rise up to try to stop Doctor Shrinker, um, which is you know a Josie and the Pussycats trope, right? And then there was Wonderbug, which you know kind of goes back to. <laughs> Like a speed buggy type show, except it's live action. You know, three teenage friends who fix an old doom buggy and what they just dubbed as a schlep car. You know, bad luck schlep rock from Pebbles and Bam Bam. Somehow Flintstone episodes get thrown, <laughs> references kind of <laughs> finds its way in our episode. Right. And yeah, every time. Uh, they attach a magic horn to the car and voila, it becomes Wonderbug and they have fun <laughs> and adventure. You know? Uh-huh. Magic Mon- Mongo, which is really a Sid and Marty trope going back to the days of uh, Lidzil. No. So try to imagine Babu from the IG Madrini cartoon sure. who did really bad magic or Marlin from the Brady Kids who did really bad magic. Right. And next thing you know, you have this genie who's not that great at doing magic. And guess what? They have misadventures. Hey! <laughs> Hey, <laughs> which I think is an excellent concept, actually, you know, and I'm surprised, you know, that's something that can actually work today. You know, just imagine you find a genie and oh, absolutely. he could grant your wishes, but, you know, somehow something goes wrong every time and hilarity ensues, you know, you know, you're I think that like every good farmer. You know, when it comes to pop culture ideas and tropes, you have to let them lay fallow sometimes. Well, as every farmer knows with their crops. Yeah. Everybody yeah, and be look on the lookout for uh, Mark and I's next creative endeavor. 
That's going to involve uh, <laughs> magical misadventures. Right. Last but not least, I have to mention that there was Bigfoot and Wild Boy that was also part of the Croft Super Show. Wild Boy becomes an orphan in the Pacific Northwest, and he's found and raised by the legendary Bigfoot that was, you know, huge in the 70s. Like, folks, you have to understand, in the mid-70s, everybody was talking about Bigfoot. It was just like, you know, does Bigfoot exist? And then it was like some footage that someone found of Bigfoot that has been debunked and debated over years. And so... I think it was really smart of Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, along with Sid and Marty Croft, to actually create a series around the Bigfoot legend. Yeah, that's pretty rad. Mm-hmm. Did you ever wonder why there are 24-hour kid networks? In my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, I write about how Saturday morning became a competitive business and the proving ground for what would become the 24-hour kid network. My book covers the big bang of the 1960s explosion of high ratings to the early digital age of Saturday morning's last hurrah, the 1990s. You can purchase my book by going to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com and I will ship you a signed copy. Everyone these days could use a little support and your friends at the ESO Network are no different. With the ESO Network Patreon, the cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO Network. So now we get into the period where Ken and Ruby Spears form Ruby Spears. And for me, Generation X or the 80s being, you know, that was my childhood. At that point, not only was I being fed a constant stream of their work with reruns, you know, the 60s and 70s, but now I'm getting fresh product from their own (laughs) production company with mega hits we're talking uh seismic game changers like thunder the barbarian and okay so what's bigger than that how about alvin and the chipmunks oh yeah oh yeah alvin (laughs) first of all you know the plastic man comedy series was uh, an awesome show as well and again plastic man they were writing for dc Right. So there's a story where Filmation was also trying to pitch a Plastic Man series. Filmation actually tried to get Plastic Man way back in 1967, and that pitch didn't go anywhere. And then later in the 70s, they tried again, and Ruby Spears ended up pitching the successful Plastic Man series. Right. uh, Which is pretty cool. But uh, you mentioned Alvin and the Chipmunks, and that show did huge ratings for NBC. Huge ratings. And when we ran Alvin and the Chipmunks on Cartoon Network, no matter where we placed it on the schedule, it did well. Right. That show did well. It delivered the goods. Yep. Every time. A lot of people, you know, had to admit that it did well, no matter where we put it. So, you know, that speaks volumes for me, because not every show on your schedule was going to work like that. Sure. And uh, that's the that's the type of show that you want on your schedule that's going to actually bring in the ratings and keep the audience from going to another network. Right. We talked about Alvin before in, in the early, one of the early oh, music sure. episodes. Absolutely. Of how the, the original series started out in prime time and then... <laughs> 
didn't do that great in the ratings and sort of got bumped down to Saturday morning. Yeah. And this iteration was like uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks for the new generation. Yeah, well, that just shows how the products created by these guys become tentpole franchises. Mm-hmm. Our first three episodes of this show, uh, Sword and Sorcery, the, the, the nucleus of that entire concept was Thundar the Barbarian. Right. And the people working behind the scenes on Thundar, it's like a who's who of great comic book creators and writers and, and artists like uh, Jack Kirby, you know, doing character designs and um, Alex Tolf, right. who also created designs. People like Buzz Dixon, who I'm friends with on Facebook, and he's, he's done a lot of science fiction writing and a, a prolific writer. Along with Marty Pasco, who I actually met at the very first comic book convention I went to in the 1970s and, right. uh, you know, signed my little autograph book because that's what people had back then. Oh, yeah. No, I totally. I used to have a little, <laughs> a little autograph book. Yeah, right. Kind of aging myself there. and uh, Well, you're aging us both. Ma- so thanks. <laughs> thanks, pal. <laughs> thanks. And, and Mark Evanier, who I also met... Um, at San Diego Comic-Con, who worked on a series who's a huge uh, Jack Kirby fan. And uh, speaking of, uh, oh, Marky Vanier is an awesome writer as well. Um, uh, but uh, Jack Kirby, Jack the King Kirby, you know, worked on this series. And uh, I'm just so surprised that a lot of these animation companies didn't reach out to Jack to do character designs because he's, you know, one of the best artists all around and has influenced so many other artists you know that's why they call him jack the king kirby and so that show oh and i can't oh steve gerber who created howard the duck he also helped co-create thundar as well so this show was going to be successful because so many incredible writers producers artists were working on thundar and uh uh, a real high watermark for Joe Ruby and Ken Spears. Well, this is this is them kicking it into third gear now. They're producers, right? Right. They're now producing this content, and they they're they're keeping up with the times. They're hitting home runs. It, mm-hmm. It's hard to overstate their footprint. What stands out for me is their adaptability, their ability to go with the times and also influence the times. Right. They were able to navigate and, and at the same time control those waters. They have a whole slew of video game based cartoons. Back when video games, uh, the, the, the plot line that you got with the, with, with the game uh, was you pretty took a backseat to the game. Pretty, pretty thin mm-hmm. stuff to work with. And they took, right. they took a lot of the necessary artistic liberties to, Again, port the idea over to children in exchange for their advertising viewing dollars. It's it's incredible, and that and that sustains through the '90s. In the mid '90s, they were uh, Mega Man had two seasons. They were right. running for Mega Man in the mid '90s. I mean, producing that. Come on, <laughs> mm-hmm. come on. Yeah, it's 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 Punky Brewster, Turbo Teen, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Dragon's Lair incredible and and do and they get into the toy market uh, and that's for right. that's for another episode but you look at centurions look at look at sectars those were both right. designed to be product heavy content laser tag academy i mean come on mm-hmm. you know right. I, it, it, it of course it was wholly divorced from the idea of 
going down to your KB store, dropping 40 bucks for this gun and the whole harness and everything. You know, they create a story around it. Hey, you know, Police Academy, Chuck Norris, Rambo. Mm-hmm. They're responsible mm-hmm. for bringing rated R to Saturday morning. Right. You know? <laughs> oh, and you know what? In 1988, let's just do some Superman because we feel like it, you know? Oh, my gosh. It's, and it's incredible. Uh, that Superman series is awesome. It's just, again, uh, a really great creative team behind the scenes working on Superman. Um, only 13 episodes, but it sort of represented the post crisis on infinite earth superman which was the huge dc storyline that changed the history and and made got they got rid of the multiverse and there's one earth one history and all the superheroes are on that one earth no more earth nine and earth three and earth two and earth s yeah go hit up our good friend jt wheatley over to history comic books podcast he'll he'll set you straight on all that uh Mm -hmm. or go have fun with some of our thunder talk we we've gotten into the the wild, wild mess that is the DC continuity. Yeah. Right. So by the time the 80s rolls around, all of Joe Ruby and and Ken Spears, all of the uh, all of their contemporaries have pretty much abandoned Saturday morning for the syndicated TV market, which was much more lucrative, uh, more creative control, and more money for your animation or your live action production. But Joe Ruby and Ken Spears did both. They stayed in the Saturday morning market and they still produced cartoons for syndication. And, and you know, you couldn't save the same for Filmation or maybe Sid and Marty Croft or Rankin Bass. Right. I mean, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears was still doing it all the way through the early 1990s. Uh, there was a show called uh, Sky Surfer Strike Force. Sky Surfer uh, Strike 1995. Force. I love, Force. love, love that show. It was beautiful. The character design was great. And uh, I just really liked the concept of it as well. I mean, these guys had ideas all day, every day, any day. Right. And it just really proves how successful they are in the industry. And this is why we're talking about them, because everyone should know about the legacy of Ken Spears, as well as uh, Joe Ruby. These are the unsung heroes of kids TV, whether it's Saturday morning syndication. These guys were awesome. You have 30 seconds to describe Thunder Talk. It's pop culture. With a twist. It's music. LBGTQ+. And comedy. Well, dark comedy. It's nerd junk. It's comic books. Video games. Conventions. Yeah, nerd junk. And social commentary. It's woke, yo. Yeah, and nerd junk. Woke nerd junk. Thunder Talk is all over the place. Every place you want to be. Thunder Talk is a proud member of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and download us on all podcast platforms. Forms. The next evolutionary leap in the Thunderverse has arrived. The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? Every show. What? 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 You come up around here wetting in sexy Thor's yard like he's anything but the hammer swinging, burrito eating, mic blazing, marking out but never tapping out Lord of Thunder, like you would do anything but sit down, open your ears, and take in the Ring of Thunder wherever you find your podcast, like you would find any other podcast in the Thunderverse or the ESO Network. Mark and I would just like to thank you for, for joining us today to honor the work and the lives of, of Ken Spears and Joe Ruby their contribution to the animation landscape here in North America 
I've said it eight times in the show, right? It, it can't be understated. Uh, so we we want to wish, uh, we we want to give our very uh, best thoughts and and wishes to the families of Mr. Spears, Mr. Ruby. Yeah, yeah, we definitely. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show and want to definitely pay our respects to the families of Ken Spears and Joe Ruby and their many contributions, their many influences, because I would not have been a kid that wanted to join or become a part of the television industry if it wasn't for those guys. So I want to thank them for helping to create my creative sensibilities and love for cartoons. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.